Well, good morning, New Life. Uh, my name is Chris. If you happen to be uh, joining us for the first time, perhaps you're, you're visiting, somebody invited you to watch our live stream. Uh, one of the pastors here, so happy that you're joining us this morning. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we are in the middle of a message series called Hope in Exile. We're walking through the first letter of Peter. And uh, I had planned on jumping into 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. That was what I was scheduled to preach. But um, just early, earlier this week, I felt like the Lord was, was prompting me to head in another direction in terms of, of what I preached this morning. And uh, I kind of wrestled, fought with that for, for about a day. And I just could not escape this conviction that the Lord wanted me to preach this specific uh, message this morning, even though it might stir up a little controversy. And so uh, we're just, we're going we're gonna to go for it. Now, let, let me start by saying that as difficult as the last couple of months have been for almost all of us during this pandemic and the subsequent shutdowns, lockdowns, quarantines, whatever you want to call them, um, man, we, we have seen here at New Life with our own eyes God's faithfulness. We've seen his, his mission advancing forward, man. We, we've seen community groups grow during this time. We've seen our reach expanded. We've seen life change happen. We've seen baptisms. Man, there are many stories I could tell you of our partnerships, both in our city here in Asheville and around the world and the ways they've seen God at work. So I just want to say, y'all, God, God is at work in the middle of all the chaos of the last couple of months God is at work. Cool things are happening in a challenging season. And we say this often at New Life because it's true. Like Church, church is not a building. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love our campus. I, I love this building. I can't wait for the day when this room is packed again and all of you are here and we're together worshiping God. Man, I, I long for that day. Um, man, I, I, can't, I can't wait. I dream of that day. It's hard. I, I hate preaching in an empty room. So we, we long for that. But listen, church is not a building. Ch church is not a, a campus. And church is not even an event that happens for an hour on Sunday morning. Church is a people, right? It, it's you and I. It's a people on mission with Jesus. That's what a church is. And listen, this virus has not inhibited the mission and function of the church at all. And we are moving full steam ahead as Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And certainly we've seen that to be true the last couple of months. So tons of cool things that we've seen God doing. He's at work in these last couple of months. And yet, as exciting as all of that is, I, I sense, I sense a, a sickness on the horizon in the body of Christ. And, and, and I, want us to, I want us to get ahead of, it, ahead of it before it grows roots and metastasizes into something even more deadly than it already is. And that disease that I, I just kind of sense bubbling up within the body of Christ is the lethal disease of disunity. Now, let me, let me explain what I'm talking about. No, you are, as I'm sure, no doubt aware that one of the unforeseen results of this pandemic has been the fracturing of our society along political lines and personal opinions. If you don't believe me, just flip on any news channel, just scroll through your social media, it's everywhere. 
And so what, what that looks like now is that you have, these, you have these camps forming around different ideas. Now, not camps that are just kind of politely, graciously forming around opinions and ideas. No, it's become this us versus them mentality. It's become the, yeah, we're right, and so now they're the enemy. So now we have camps like, uh, you know, we've got the reopen Reopening the economy to save, to save businesses right now camp versus the, hey, we better take our time to save lives camp. We've got, we've got camps forming around, yeah, we should, we should wear masks versus, no, I'm not, I'm not ever going to wear a mask. Even within the body of Christ, man, we, we've got the, the camp where it's just kind of like, hey, let's just trust God and reopen camp versus the, hey, no, we need to love our neighbor camp and be careful and meticulous and take our time in how we reopen. And so we, we see people taking these opinions and these political talking points and dividing into us versus them camps. And we're seeing that in our society, and as much as it bothers me to see that happen out there in our society, it absolutely breaks my heart to see some of this disunity, this disease of disunity, trickle into the body of Christ. We're believers. We're, we're, we're the family of God on both sides of any one of these issues begin to create these, these, little, these little tribes that are warring against one another within the overall family of God. And I've said this before, and I absolutely believe it to be true. I think one of Satan's greatest tactics in his assault against the kingdom of God, his number one strategy is to divide the family of God to divide and conquer. It's one of the oldest tricks in warfare. And he is a, listen, he's a master at it. And it reminded me of a, an old quote from one of the ancient military handbooks called The Art of War. This quote will be on the screen for you. It says this in The Art of War. If he, the enemy, is superior in strength, evade him. Now listen to this. If his forces are united, separate them. Attack him where he is unprepared. Appear where you are not expected. One of the oldest tricks in warfare in human history, follower of Jesus, our enemy is no fool. He has been in this battle a lot longer than you and I have ever been. Unless we have spiritual eyes, we have our spiritual eyes open to see what is happening around us, we will run headlong into destructive patterns that will harm us and bring shame to the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Now listen, I don't, I don't want that to be us as a church family. And I, and I know that deep down, that's not what you desire for our church family as well. So today we're, we're gonna be talking about the subject of unity and love for one another within the body of Christ, even when we have differences. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab that, open it up. Uh, we'll be back in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And I just want to drill down on one singular verse. Then we're going to go to John's Gospel. And we're going to unpack what Jesus has to say about our unity. And then we'll, we'll be done. That'll be our time. Now, uh, remember, Peter is, is writing this letter to a group of churches who are in exile. It's a group of people who are hurting. They're suffering. They're being 
persecuted for their faith. Perhaps they're even tempted in this moment to begin to turn on one another because life is hard and they're under great suffering at this time. And Peter is, is writing this letter to uh, challenge them and to encourage them in the right direction in their walk with God. And so we're just gonna drill down First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 22. This is what Peter, the apostle Peter, writes to these hurting, confused, suffering believers. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, he's, he's talking about what he just finished talking about in the first half of chapter one. He's talking about their response to the gospel, that they heard the gospel, they believed it, they obeyed it, now they're following Jesus, and because they're following Jesus, their souls have now been purified by the shed blood of Jesus. And now, he kind of brings the question, well, what was all of that for? So your, your glorious salvation, uh, this living hope that God has promised you, like what is that for? What's, what's, what should be the end result of you experiencing this type of grace from Jesus? Let's go back to verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, here it is, for, for what purpose? Why were you saved? For a sincere brotherly love. Love, now it gives us a command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now what Peter is unmistakably saying to these believers here is that the end result of encountering, like truly encountering Jesus and being transformed from the inside out by him is a type of love for one another. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that is marked by three things, three characteristics. So he gives us three marks about how this love for one another should play out for every single person who loves and follows Jesus. First, Peter says that Jesus produces a love in us for one another that is sincere. Now that simply means that, that we don't feign love for one another. Like we, we don't pretend, we don't fake love for each other. He's saying that ought to be a a real, genuine, sincere kind of love. Now, we've probably all, if you've been in church for uh, any amount of time, we've probably all experienced a time, or 20, uh, when we just feel like people are kind of pretending like they care about us in a tough time in our lives, right? And so oftentimes, well-meaning people will say things like, man, Chris, I know you're going through a hard time. I will be praying for you, man. I'll be praying for you. You just let me know if you need anything. But so often it just feels like people are using these platitudes as a form of politeness and they, politeness because, and they just kind of say these things because they feel like they're supposed to. But are they really praying for you? Yeah, can you really call them at two o'clock in the morning if you need them and they'll be right there for you? Peter's saying, yeah, listen, you guys don't need to, y'all don't need to love each other in that way. Don't just, don't just feign or fake love for each other. Peter's saying you need, to, you need to love each other sincerely. You need to love one another in the body of Christ the way that Jesus loved you. And Jesus didn't love you with polite platitudes. And hey, call me if you need me and I'll, I'll be praying for your brother. No, Jesus sacrificed himself in every way a person can sacrifice themselves for those that he loves. And now, as recipients of that kind of sacrificial love, Peter's saying, man, we've gotta start loving each other in that way. It's got to be in sincere love. The second characteristic of, of this kind of love for one another that Jesus gives us, Peter says, it's got to be a love that's, that's earnest. 
That's not a word that we use a whole lot anymore, but this is the idea of loving each other fervently or intently, or loving each other without ceasing. In other words, this is a kind of relentless love. This is a kind of love that says, listen, though I disagree with you, I love you fiercely, and there is nothing that is going to divide us relationally. That, that's earnest love. Now, see, we tend to li- kind of read over verses like this in Scripture, and like, oh, okay, God wants us to love each other. We just kind of pass over it. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. You need to stop. You need to, you need to drill down a little bit deeper here. We're talking, about a, we're talking about a fiercely loyal, undivided heart sort of love here. So Peter goes, I want you to love each other sincerely. I want you to love each other in light of the gospel earnestly. And then finally, he says, go back to verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. And then number three from, he says, love each other from a pure heart. From a pure heart. And what Peter means to say here is that we ought to love each other within the family of God with no strings attached. That our, that our love for one another should be a very deep love that comes from the very core of who we are. And so often we, we tend to love people with strings attached, right? Like, man, I, I'll love you as long as you can do something for me. We wouldn't say that, but that's how we live our lives and that's how we interact with other people. As long as you're doing what I think you should do, then I'm gonna love you and support you. And the moment that you don't do what I think you should do, then I'm not gonna love you and I'm not gonna support you. I'll love you as long as you love me back the way that I wanna be loved and I wanna be served. I will love you as long as you don't disagree with my political views. I will love you and be in unity with you as long as you wear a mask when you go out or as long as you don't wear a mask when you go out. I'll, 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 be, I'll love you as long as you agree with me that churches should open up now instead of opening up later. And I've seen these kind of camps develop in the church over the years. Listen, friends, over the silliest things you can imagine. I've seen young moms and young dads within churches divide into like, you got the public school camp over here and the private school camp over here and the homeschool camps over here. Young moms, how about, how about this one? The, you got the, the breastfeeding camp and the formula feeding camp, man. And we don't, we don't cross-pollinate, man, because those people don't get it. We got the cloth diaper camp over here against the disposable diaper camp over here. We don't cross, because, man, they don't get it. I just want to say, cloth diapers are nasty, all right? Now, my, my mom used them growing up. You do it. That, that's, I'm just, it's, it's nasty. But we, we divide over these goofy, little, the dumbest things. And now it becomes within the body of Christ, it's, it's us, the ones that have it right on whatever issue you want to pick against all those morons over there who clearly are not as enlightened as we are. And the danger for us now in the current climate of our culture is that we begin to love each other with conditions. And Peter is saying to us, church, that's not love. That's actually not love at all. If you, listen, if you only love the people that look like you and act like you and think like you and vote like you and share all of your opinions, that's not love at all. That's actually self-love. 
That's actually the highest form of arrogance. And not only is that not Christian love, it is actually anti-gospel idolatry. It is self-worship at its core. And church, I want you to hear me say this. That is, that is wrong. It is, it is evil. And if in your heart today you are harboring these ideas against other believers in Christ, I just want to tell you, you need to repent from that. Brother, turn from that. Sister, turn from that. That is not from God. Peter says, you are to love each other sincerely, earnestly, from a pure heart. No conditions and no strings attached. And the reality is, when we begin to love each other in this way, something peculiar and beautiful begins to happen. Something unique is birthed from this kind of love, and that is unity within diversity, Christian unity. You say, Chris, man, why, why, why is that important, man? Why can't we just kind of gather and, and, and worship and kind of ignore the people that we don't really agree with and just go home? Here, and, and here's why. Here's why we cannot do that and that is not acceptable in the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus died for our unity. Jesus died for our unity. Now, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and in this scene, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to go to the cross, and he's, he's preparing his disciples for his departure. And so I, I just imagine his disciples would have been kind of confused. At this point in time, maybe they're a little frustrated, they're, they're, they're sad, and, and Jesus prays this absolutely stunning prayer over his disciples. This is John 17, starting in, in verse 20. I want you to listen to this prayer. Jesus prays this. I do not ask for these only, his 12 disciples he's talking about there. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's, that's you and me, future disciples. So he's praying for his current disciples and all of his future disciples. This is what he prays in verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Now, church family, that is an arresting prayer. Jesus prays for the 12, the 12 disciples. And then he prays for every disciple who is not yet even born. He's praying for you and me. And what is the one thing that he prays for them right before he goes to the cross? What is the one thing that Jesus holds up as supremely important for his people after he leaves? that they would have perfect theology, that they, would, that they would read their Bible every single day without fail, that they would all vote exactly the same way on every political issue, that they would, that they would never cuss, smoke, or drink? Was that, was that the supreme thing that he held up for his people before he went to the cross? That they would all agree on whether or not to wear a mask during a global pandemic? No, none of that stuff. His supreme prayer for his disciples went like this. Father, Father, help them be one. 
When I, when I come back to you and I send my spirit, God, please, above all else, help them be unified so the world will know that you sent me. And then Jesus prays something absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus goes, help them be one, just as you and I are one, Father. See, it's, it's one thing for us to come here for an hour on Sunday mornings and just kind of tolerate each other. I mean, we're all pretty good at superficial unity. But Jesus goes, man, that's, that's, not, that's not what I'm talking about here. Jesus goes, I, I want you guys. I actually, I, I command you, I command you to, to be one, to be unified, just as, just as, this is where it gets hard, just as I and my Father are one. Say, what? Just as Jesus and his Father are one? Is there any relationship on the planet that is closer than God the Father and God the Son? The answer to that is no. I don't care how close you are to your, your boo or your spouse or your boyfriend or your kids. There is no closer relationship in this universe than God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, that's how close and that's how unified I expect you guys to be when I leave. Now that is, that is shocking. And quite frankly to me, that, that seems almost impossible. And listen to me, without Jesus and his spirit living inside of us, that is impossible. Now here's why that's impossible. Our, our world tends to unify around sameness, doesn't it? Think about it. Our world values unity, but unity is always around sameness. That's why you have political clubs and fraternities in college that typically tend to be white fraternities or black fraternities. You have motorcycle clubs and never the Honda guys with the Harley guys, right? They're always separated. You can't be messing with those other guys. So we have sports stadiums with hundreds of thousands of people unified around one team. Or people gather and they unify around a hobby or their love for knitting or whatever it is. The world unifies around sameness. And there's nothing unique or special about that kind of unity. But what made the early church, the first century church, so special and unique and distinct and powerful was that this church was a multicultural church. It was a multiracial church. You had people from every socioeconomic class. You had tax collectors who politically would have been on one side of the political spectrum. You had zealots who were followers of Jesus who would have been on the opposite side of the political spectrum. You had poor people, you had rich people, you had morally religious people, and you had former prostitutes. And get this, they all loved each other. Not, not a fake kind of love, not I'll pray for you, brother. They genuinely, deeply loved one another in spite of their differences. Acts chapter two tells us that they loved each other so much that they began to sell their land and their possessions so that they would care for one another to the point that nobody in the whole community of faith had a single need. And as a result of this kind of uncommon unity, this unity in diversity, Luke tells us in Acts 2 that the result of that was that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, the, the world looked at these early Christians and they're like, man, I understand how the Romans are united. 
And I understand how the Jews are united. And I understand how the Samaritans are united. And the Greeks and the Gentiles and the upper class and the lower class. I understand how all of those people are united together. But what we have never seen is all of these different people groups and all of these different cultures and all of these different political persuasions and ethnicities unified in their love for Jesus and their radical love for one another. We have never seen anything like this. This is revolutionary and we want this. I love the definition of Christian unity by a pastor named Tony Evans. This will be on the screen, screen for you. This is how Tony Evans describes unity for Christians. He says, unity does not mean uniformity. It means oneness of purpose. I love that. Unity does not mean uniformity. It means oneness of purpose. And these early Christians, listen to me, they had nothing in common except a unity of purpose that was to love God with everything that they had and to love each other ferociously, even in their differences. And that's what made them powerful. And that's what allowed them to change the world the way that they did. Now, I want to go back to Jesus' prayer in John 17 just for a minute. Jesus prays for their unity, that they would be one above all else. More important, more supreme than anything else in their lives was their unity and their love for one another. Then he says something shocking. Let's go back. This is his prayer. He says, I do not ask only for, for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now listen, I want you to underline this, this phrase, so that, if you're, if you're reading in your Bible, just underline that. I'm praying for their unity, so that, in order that, this is the reason, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, there's that same phrase again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, isn't that incredible? Jesus says, Father, help them be unified. Help them be one just as you and I are one, Father, so that the world would know that you sent me and loved them too. Jesus says the primary way the world is gonna know that Jesus is who he said he was, is our love and our unity with fellow believers in Christ. The number one way the world is gonna know is through our unity. Now that's shocking. Quite frankly, that was a bit shocking for me as I was digging in and studying this week because the reality is, for most of my life, the primary way I, in my mind that people are gonna believe the message of Jesus. I've just kind of thought, my life, man, the way people are gonna believe in Jesus is when we get really good at evangelism. When we get really good at sharing our faith. Now, when we, when we get all of our apologetic points just right, then people are gonna believe. When we can convince people with enough logic that the gospel is not a fable, but it's actually a historical reality, then people are gonna believe the message of Jesus. And listen to me, friends, all of those things are important. Sharing your faith is important, apologetic, all of that is important, but Jesus points to one thing above all of those other things. He points to our unity as the one thing that proves to a watching world that his message is true. Friend, do you understand the magnitude of what Jesus just prayed over his disciples here? If you believe that these words from Jesus are true, 
I'm not sure that there's anything more important in our spiritual walk right now or ever than our unity and our love for one another. Now, I, I've just got to confess to you that for most of my Christian life, I have missed the boat on this. Because for most of my Christian life, I have prioritized preaching well. I have prioritized right theology, great strategy, missional effectiveness. But if I'm being honest with you, church, this morning, I don't know that I've ever truly, I've never really truly had my heart bent in a radical way towards unity within the body of Christ, the way that Jesus is describing. And I just need to tell you, I need to repent of that. In fact, as I was studying this week, I, I did. I had to stop, I had to pray, I had to ask God to forgive me for not prioritizing the thing that he held up as supreme in his bride, his body of believers. Now, friend, here, here's the truth. If you're watching this, if you're tuning in and you love and follow Jesus, you're my brother. If you're watching this and you love Jesus and you follow Jesus, you're my sister. Not in some kind of weird, hyper-spiritual, platitude kind of way. I mean, according to Jesus, you are my real deal family. We will spend eternity together forever. So what that means is whether or not we root for the same sports team or not, listen, I know all of you out there don't love the Lord's team, the Alabama Crimson Tide like I do, and I trust that he's gonna in time forgive you for that. And, and, whether, and whether we share the same views on every single political issue or whether we, say, we share the same exact opinion on reopening the economy or reopening churches during a pandemic or whether we share the same preferences on worship music, listen, listen to me, friends. One day, all of that will melt away when we stand before the glory of resurrected King Jesus and all that will matter, listen, All that will matter in that moment is our love for him and our unity with one another. That's all that will matter. All this other stuff that we're squabbling about right now won't matter one single bit in eternity, not a bit. I want you to listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. This is what he had to say in a sermon that he preached to his church on the subject of unity within the body of Christ. And this is what he had to say about his friend, George Herbert, with, by the way, with whom he had many disagreements uh, over in regards to church and how you should worship God. Listen, listen to the words of Spurgeon about his friend, George Herbert. Spurgeon says, where the spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Jesus Christ, The love of Christ constrains me no more to think of him as a stranger or a foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Now I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan. I love the way Spurgeon writes and speaks. I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan himself. But but I love George Herbert. Although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman, I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul. And I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. 
Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ as George Herbert did, and I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There is no room for that question, for I cannot help myself unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ. I cannot cease loving those who love him. What a great example for us. That is unity within the body of Christ, even among diversity. Now, I want to give you quickly, we're going to go quickly through this. We're almost done. Hang with me. I want to give you four reasons why unity in the church is crucial. Right? Four, four reasons why unity in the church is crucial. Unity is crucial because, number one, Jesus died for it. And really, that should be the only reason we need. We could probably just delete the last three reasons. Jesus died for it. Now, we've already established the last thing Jesus prays for his disciples before he heads off to the cross to die for our sins is their oneness and their unity and their love for one another. Jesus died to make spiritually dead people alive and then give them a oneness, the same oneness that he shares with his Father. Church, listen to me. If Jesus died to purchase a unified people for himself, how can we do anything less than love each other without limits? How can we do anything less than love one another without condition in spite of our differences? So that's reason number one, that unity in the church body is critical because Jesus died for it, number one. Number two, the second reason that, that uh, unity is so critical in the church body, number two, is because we need it. We need it. Now, you, you may not realize this, but we need one another. <laughs> I, I, I need you and uh, the unique qualities and gifts that you bring to this body, and you need me and the unique qualities and gifts that I bring to this body. We need each other to become all that God has created us to be. And when we, when we fracture into these little subgroups and, and, and tribes within the body, we are killing what actually makes us strong. I want you to understand, our differences actually make us stronger together. Listen, for those of you who are uh, basketball fans, I know North Carolina, it's a, it's a round ball state. And so for those of you, and I know many of you are basketball fans, listen, if you had an entire basketball team made up of nothing but centers or nothing but point guards, how good would that team be? No matter how good all those point guards are, how good all those centers are, they're gonna get absolutely crushed by well-rounded teams. Right, because a good basketball team has centers and power forwards and point guards and shooting guards and swing guys and good, good guys off the bench. Listen, a great team is great, not because they're the same. A great team is great because of their unity and diversity. And so it is with the church. Next week in, in chapter two, I'm not gonna give it all away, but next week Peter's gonna tell us that we're actually like living stones. As followers of Jesus, we're like, we're like living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. And have you ever thought about yourself in, in that way, that you're, you're a living stone being built into something that is far greater together than you would ever be on your own? You're a stone being built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And now you're being stacked on top of them. And then one day, Christians that aren't even born yet are gonna be stacked on top of you. And together, we're, we're building this beautiful family and this temple that points a dying world to a beautiful God. And so we, we need each other. Unity in the church is crucial because we need each other. The third reason that unity in the church is crucial is because the world sees the gospel through it. 
through our unity. Jesus was clear, the world will know you belong to me by your love for one another. Not by anything else, not by your political allegiances or your personal opinions about anything else. The world will know that you belong to me by your love for one another. John 17, his prayer was, the world will know that you have sent me, Father, by how my disciples are one. Now look, I confess to you, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because in my mind, the world will believe the message of Jesus when they see miracles. Or or the, the world will believe the message of Jesus when we have the most logical arguments. But Jesus goes, nope, none of that. The world will not believe because of any of those things. The world will believe because of your unity and your love for one another. That's the one thing that is gonna show them who I am. The last reason that unity and love for one another is critical within the body of Christ. Number four, it is, it is the proof. Our unity is the proof that we belong to Jesus. It's the proof that we belong to Jesus. Now don't, don't turn there, but I wanna show you something. This is in 1 John chapter four. Now this is the apostle John. Uh, one of the disciples of Jesus and probably uh, the closest person, Jesus' best friend. This is what he writes. John writes, Beloved, he's writing to, to believers, to Christians, to you and I. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now verse eight gets a little, gets a little offensive, so brace yourself. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this, our love for each other, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Church, our unity with one another and our love for one another as followers of Jesus, listen to me. It is the mark of those who truly know and have been transformed by Jesus. Church, this is a massive deal. If you say that you love Jesus, but you don't, you don't love and you don't share a spirit of unity that overrides differences with brothers and sisters who don't agree with you on everything, John says the love of God is not in you. His words, not mine. Don't, don't send me any hate, hate mail. Send it to Apostle John. Friends, let, let, let's, let's learn to love each other. And when I say love each other, I mean really love each other. Not just with little polite platitudes. Let's learn to deeply love each other as the family of God. And let's unify within our diversity, both for our ultimate good and so that ultimately the world would see and know that Jesus came to set them free. I wanna close with a quote from a a brilliant man who went home to be with Jesus this last week, Ravi Zacharias. And um, this is one of my my favorite quotes, one of the most impressive things I think that he ever said among many impressive things that he he wrote and taught. But Ravi, Ravi, Ravi once said this, he said, Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad people good He came into the world to make dead people alive. And church, alive people in God's kingdom love one another and they are beautifully united around the gospel. Church, new life, may it be so in these days for us to the glory of our King.
Let's pray. Father, would you, would you remind us constantly, consistently, God, would you remind us that we are a purchased people, that we are, we are not our own. We aren't free agents anymore. We're, we're a part of your family. You, you own us. You, you purchased us with the very blood of Jesus Christ, God. Would you remind us that our ultimate allegiance isn't to the kingdoms of this world, but as followers of Jesus, that our ultimate allegiance belongs to another kingdom entirely and a better king. God, would you help us to, would you help us to love one another? God, give us uncommon unity within our diversity, even amidst all of our differences. God, would you give us a beautiful unity that would shout to the world that you are who you said that you are. God, would you use us to display your goodness to a divided, ripped apart world around us, God. Would you, would you knit us together, Father? Would you knit our hearts together in, in such a way that those around us would just be astounded at the, the love and the unity within the family of Jesus? And we ask and we pray all of these things in his beautiful name for his glory. Amen.